open up to Acts chapter 4. If you're using the Bibles in the seats, you should find that in most of those Bibles around page 771. So, Acts chapter 4. You can tell a lot about someone by the heroes that they admire and by the leaders that they respect. If Anne and I were to poll both sets of our parents, they're not all alive anymore, but if we were to sit down with them and talk with them about which U.S. president they each admired most, we would get everything from John F. Kennedy to Ronald Reagan. And that says a lot about each of our parents. Likewise, when our kids are hanging out with some of their friends and and they're discussing the Marvel superheroes and which one they like best, they'll choose everything from Iron Man to Black Widow to Spider-Man. And that says a lot, again, about our kids and what they value. In today's story in, in Acts 4, we see a strong contrast between two sets of leaders. One is the apostles, the 12 followers of Jesus whom Jesus has appointed and sent to lead his missional movement. And the other is what I'll call the council. They're they're the religious leadership of Jerusalem. And in the story today, we see that, that a deep rift is beginning to open up between them. The question of the book of Acts that that it's going to put to us through this story is which group of these leaders are we going to side with as the story continues? Because you can tell a lot about a person by the leaders that they respect and admire. The story begins where we left off last Sunday. Peter and John had gone up to the temple about three in the afternoon to pray and to worship. And on the way, they'd met a crippled man who was begging in front of one of the temple's amazing, beautiful, silver and gold, hammered gold, silver gates. And Peter had said to this impoverished beggar sitting in front of this amazing gold and silver gate, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And he'd reached down and he'd helped the lame man to his feet. And the crippled man had proceeded to walk and, and to join the apostles going into the temple, leaping and praising God. And this had attracted a large crowd because the crippled beggar was well known. He had been there for years. And, and Peter had used the opportunity to tell the people what had happened. The lame man had been healed in the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, Peter said, who is alive, who is powerful. Jesus Christ, who the people of Jerusalem had rejected and disowned and put to death, but whom God had raised from the dead and exalted to be Lord of all. Peter had told how all the Jewish scriptures foretold these events and the coming of the last days of which these events were signs and evidences. Further, Peter had given the crowd the good news that even though they had had a hand in crucifying the one God had sent, they had acted in ignorance, as had their leaders. They didn't know or realize what they were doing, and so God was offering them forgiveness. And times of refreshing, as Jesus would pour out the Holy Spirit on him, just like he had done at Pentecost on Jesus' followers, inviting them into the new age that is dawning. 
All the people had to do to join in on this was to repent and to turn around and to turn back to God by putting their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and King. Well, at this point, Luke interrupts Peter's speech to tell us that some authorities have shown up and they are not happy. These are not the political authorities. They're not the Romans, but they're the religious authorities, though they have a lot of political clout. Before we look at the ensuing confrontation, though, let's notice what Luke tells us later, and that is how the people responded to Peter's talk. Down in verse 4, Luke says, Many who heard the message believed, so the number who believed grew to about 5,000. Up from 3,000 just a chapter ago. The Jesus movement is growing like crazy. In fact, from what we know of the population of Jerusalem at the time, this is likely, this 5,000 is likely 5 or 10% of the city already who have recognized Jesus as their rightful king. In other words, this movement is very quickly having a big impact on the city of Jerusalem and in a very public way. No wonder it gets the attention of the religious leadership. Well, who are these leaders? Luke tells us they include the priests. The priests, of course, were responsible for what went on in the temple, for its functioning and its maintenance. And and then the captain of the temple guard. The temple we saw last Sunday was a massive complex, a huge institution, and it had its own police force, its own security force. This was important because the temple was the main public gathering place in Jerusalem. It was the hub. It was the heart and the soul, the main public area of the city. And so the temple guards would would keep order. They would protect the peace. They would enforce the temple's religious rules. And, And then there's the Sadducees who are showing up as well. And these were a religious party, a school of religious thought. And the Sadducees tended to be the elite and the sophisticated. I mean, this is, this, these are the Manhattanites here. and The Washington, D.C.ites. And, and there were lots of them of this party among the priests and the top hierarchy in Jerusalem. One of their main beliefs was that they didn't really believe in the supernatural. Much of it, anyway. They, they didn't believe in angels or demons. They, and most relevant to today's story, they, they didn't believe in a future resurrection. They didn't believe that in the age to come, God was going to raise people to life or any of that superstitious stuff. So this whole group is is now showing up while Peter is speaking, and they are not happy. They are greatly disturbed, in fact. Why? Because Peter and John are here addressing a large crowd, and they're proclaiming that the resurrection of the dead is not only real, but that it's happening now. That this guy, Jesus, has been raised from the dead. And in the future, all of his followers are going to be raised as well. Well, these religious leaders are so violently upset that they seize Peter and John and they arrest them and they cart them away. Right out from in front of this crowd. And since it's evening, they hold them overnight. Well, by the next morning, the Jerusalem leadership has assembled for what, in effect, is a court case. Luke tells us in verse 5 that that the rulers are there and the elders and the teachers of the law. In addition to those we met the evening before, there are now elders, the, the chief leading men of the city, wealthy, revered, powerful, connected. 
And the teachers of the law, these are lawyers, in effect, experts in the Jewish law and in the scriptures. And Luke says this group includes even Annas, the high priest, the top Jewish religious leader and his elite inner circle, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others from the high priestly family. As with many oligarchs, there tend to be a few elite families who hold most of the power and most of the wealth. And this is the case in Jerusalem. And this is the group that's assembled here, the, the full leadership of God's people. And this shows you just how seriously this group took what was going on with Jesus and th- that they all show up in person for this trial of those who are talking about Jesus. If this is, is the full Sanhedrin, the full ruling council of Jerusalem, it would have been over 70 leaders. I don't know if they're all there. But this Sanhedrin group met in a large semicircle, and they stick Peter and John right in the middle, glaring at them, no doubt, with stern, contemptuous faces. And I'm wondering, would you be intimidated? Would I be intimidated if this was me? And remember, Peter and John are not even from Jerusalem. They are country guys from Galilee. They're not educated. They're not well-connected. There are likely few familiar or friendly faces in the courtroom that day. These aren't their circles. All the money, all the education, all the sophistication. This is like if a janitor at at the venue that's hosting the Oscars suddenly finds himself on stage at the the red carpet gala. (laughs) Only in this case, Peter and John are also on trial. How are they going to respond? What will they say? Remember just a couple months before, Peter had buckled when people accused him of being connected to Jesus. In fear, he'd claimed he didn't even know Jesus. Well, this morning is different. Luke tells us in verse 8 that Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. And that explains how Peter responds the way that he does. If you remember back to the story of Jesus, Jesus had warned his followers that he would be hauled before rulers and courts. And Peter told them, don't worry, because God's spirit will give you the right words to say, the things you need at that moment. And so this happens, and and the council starts, and they they start questioning Peter and John. And as we'll see in verse 10, the lame man that they healed is evidently with them as well. And, And the council says, by what power or what name did you do this? And Peter speaks, and he's plucky, and he's eloquent, and he's brilliant. Rulers and elders of the people. If we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead that this man stands before you healed. Basically, Peter's saying, what problem do you guys have with us? (laughs) Are you upset that we did a good deed and helped this poor beggar to walk? Since when is that a crime? But, But since you asked how we did the impossible, we did it by the authority of that guy, Jesus. You know, the one you killed, but who's back. God raised him from the dead. 
And now through his power, crippled people are being healed. In his name, we, his followers, are continuing the works, the miracles Jesus did when he had been alive. And here's the proof right in front of you. Everyone knows this guy was crippled from birth, but now look at him. He's perfectly healed. Want to know how? The name of Jesus. The authority of Jesus, because Jesus is alive. Pretty hard to refute, right? But then Peter takes it up a notch. He makes a far bigger claim. He says, not only is Jesus Christ alive, raised by God from the dead, but verse 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Now, doesn't that sound exclusive and narrow, especially in today's culture? Doesn't it grate against the openness and the inclusivity that we're used to today? Well, it would have sounded a bit different to Jewish ears back then. Because for one thing, the Jews were monotheists. They believed in only one true God. And that all the other gods were made-up gods. The, the Greek gods like Zeus and Athena, the Eastern gods like Ishtar and Mithras. The Jews said, no, those are all fictions. Only Yahweh is the real God. But now Peter is claiming to these Jews that if, if he's telling them, if you want to be a part of what Yahweh is now doing in the world, it's through Jesus. You, you have to follow Jesus because Jesus is the one Yahweh has sent. Jesus is the only way to be part of what is happening. Salvation is found only in Jesus. Now this word salvation also sounds different to Jewish ears. Than it sounds to our ears today. Listen up, this, this part's important. We, we tend to think of, of salvation as having to do with the state of our souls, with, with our status, regarding whether we're going to go to heaven or hell when we die. But that focus comes more from the revival movements of, of the past couple centuries than from the Bible. Although it, it is in the Bible, and I'll, I'll explain. In the Bible, though, salvation is bigger than that, and it has a somewhat different focus. Interestingly, in, in the original Greek, saved is the word used in verse 9 to describe that the crippled man has been healed or made well. Literally, the crippled man has been saved. This word saved is often used in, in the Gospels when Jesus heals someone. Because in the Bible, salvation means that you're in some sort of trouble and God steps in and rescues you out of that trouble. Or even bigger, the world is in trouble. Would any of you agree the world's in trouble? <laughs> but God steps in to deal with that trouble and God rescues us out of that trouble. That's salvation in the Bible. It's even bigger than the status of our being in or out of heaven, although that is certainly part of it. Interestingly, in around 30 BC, when Augustus Caesar defeats rival claimants to the Roman Empire and ends the civil war and unites all the people around the Mediterranean under one rule of the Roman Empire, and the region begins to enjoy peace and commerce begins to flourish and people settle down with their lives and their lives have a chance to flourish, Caesar is called Savior and Lord, if you read the history books. He's called Savior and Lord. 
A savior in the popular language of that time, as well as in the Bible, was someone who brings you freedom, someone who brings you peace, someone who gets you out of trouble. And so when Peter says there's salvation in no one else, there's no other name given by which we must be saved, Peter is saying something bigger than how to go to heaven when you die. Sure, that's part of it, but there's much more. Peter is saying there's only one solution to the world's problems. And there's only one solution ultimately to your problems. And it's Jesus Christ. That's what Peter is saying. Sure, providing someone with a good education is very helpful in solving the world's problems and their problems. Being empowered, learning to believe in yourself and to like yourself and finding love and companionship is all wonderful. So is clean water and good medical care and fulfilling and securing employment for everyone or finding fulfilling and secure employment for everyone. But those solutions by themselves only go so far. There's more that our hearts need. There's a deeper place in our hearts that need to be touched and fulfilled and transformed. And there are bigger problems in this world that technology can't seem to touch and that politicians seem helpless to fix. And sure, if we would all just be kinder to each other, the world would be a much better place. But that's the problem. We can't get most of the people most of the time to be kinder to each other on or off of Twitter. Jesus is proclaim, or sorry, Peter is proclaiming here that there's only one ultimate cure, only one ultimate answer to our personal well-being and to this world's problems. And it's not Caesar or Hermes or Aphrodite. It's Jesus Christ who is the one who holds the key to these solutions. In fact, Peter says Jesus Christ is the key, the key to human history, the key to life. Peter calls him the cornerstone in verse 11. It can also be translated the keystone or the capstone. The most critical part of the whole picture that holds it all together is Jesus Christ, Peter claims. Let me put it another way. What Peter is advocating for is not a new private religion. Peter is not trying to convert anyone to Christianity. No, Peter is making a public truth claim which has political and economic and ethical as well as spiritual implications. Peter is claiming that God has made Jesus, not Caesar, not anyone else, but Jesus, the Lord and Savior of the world and the key to life and history. And we're going to see how the religious council reacts. They say in effect, Fine, believe in Jesus if you want to, but keep it quiet. Keep it to yourself. Believe it in your heart privately. That's fine. Have your little religious services, but don't teach it or proclaim it publicly. Let it be your private religion. But Peter and John say, no, you misunderstand. This is not a private religion. We're claiming that Jesus Christ is alive and is the key to all of life and history. Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord, as much so and even much more so than Augustus Caesar. 
Now, Christianity today has largely lost this perspective, except for the conservative political version of it, which is a whole other story. But, but we've made our religion largely about a private relationship and a get-out-of-hell-free card. Society has, has pressured us to do this, just like Peter and John were pressured, but unlike the apostles, we've gone along, largely. Partly because we don't understand what salvation is, all of what it is, and what the full gospel message was that the apostles were proclaiming. If we did, the message we have to share about Jesus Christ would be totally threatening and totally obnoxious to today's world. What, you're claiming that Jesus is Lord of America and of the whole world? And everyone should obey him? Seriously? Christians would be totally threatening except for one thing. And that is the kind of Lord that Jesus is. A crucified Lord. A self-sacrificing servant Lord. A humble Lord. Because Jesus' way of ruling is self-giving love. It's the way of the cross. It's the way of washing feet, as we saw a number of weeks back. And putting others before ourselves. Remember the Beatitudes? We looked at the Sermon on the Mount last year. Jesus' way of ruling is serving. It's, it's conquering through allowing yourself to be defeated. Of being strong in, in your weakness. So that nobody's going to force anything on anyone. We're, we're only going to love and to serve and encourage you to do the same as you come to follow Jesus as well. That's why people who've understood this, like Martin Luther King Jr., were so effective. Because their movement moved forward publicly in the public square, the political square, by turning the other cheek, by forgiving their persecutors, by returning violence with a blessing. That is the Jesus that Peter is proclaiming. The Jesus that Peter's proclaiming is the key to world history. That's Peter's message. It's the apostolic message, the message of the apostles. And Peter has just boldly shared it in front of this semicircle of his nation's most rich and powerful men. What boldness and what an opportunity God's given him. And now we'll look at their response, verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, right? Who are these two? They, they have maybe an eighth grade education. They have tough blue-collared hands and uh, manners and vocabulary. They're nobodies. And yet they're bold. They're, they're eloquent. And it's astonishing. And then the council realizes that these guys were trained by Jesus. Another peasant man who was unschooled and yet bold and eloquent. And further, what's the council to say that the cripple who's been healed miraculously is standing right there and so the council is speechless? Can you believe it? All of the elite, educated, privileged leaders and their top lawyers, they have nothing to say. No explanations, no rebuttals. And so they call a recess. They have a private conference together with their lawyers. What are we going to do with these men, they ask? 
Everyone in Jerusalem knows they performed a notable sign and we can't deny it. They admit this much, but, but here's their response, verse 17. To stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. What's the basic response of these leaders? It's to protect their own power and privilege. They're, they're threatened by this new Jesus movement. They're threatened enough that they all turned up to this trial, even the high priest himself. You see, this group of men enjoy the power and the privilege that they have because they've made compromises with the Roman Empire. Right? The Romans are the real power here. Caesar is the final authority. But the empire need local people to administer their territories and to keep the peace and to collect the taxes. So here's their deal with the religious leaders. The Romans say, we know that you Jews are, are religious people. You've got your own culture, your own religion. That's fine. You be the religious leadership for your territory. Enjoy your power. Enjoy your status. Enjoy your notoriety. Here's what we want in return. Keep the peace. No riots. No uprisings. No revolutions. Keep things calm in the streets. So the taxes roll in. Commerce flourishes. We hold our power. That's the deal. And it's a sweet deal for these religious leaders. But problem is, they just had this guy, Jesus, who drew large crowds, who overturned tables in the temple, who talked about a new kingdom, and got the city of Jerusalem all whipped up. And so the leaders had had to have him killed, to take him out, to restore the peace. But now his followers are at it. Again, stirring things up, talking about resurrection, which in that context had revolutionary overtones in people's ears. It was part of the whole future hope the Jews had that God would step in and rescue his people from Roman opposition and send them a Messiah, a Jewish king, and send his Holy Spirit and raise the dead. And these leaders don't want anyone talking like that. They don't want a new age. They don't want a new king. They don't want a new kingdom. They want the status quo, period. And so in their book, these apostles are stirring up trouble. And the council needs it to stop. They have no patience for details like how this man got healed or whether Jesus really rose from the dead. Of course he didn't. People don't rise from the dead, though the tomb is glaringly empty. And evidently nobody could explain why. And nobody had been able to produce the corpse to debunk the resurrection claim. And here are Jesus' followers now who... who had all scattered when Jesus died. They had denied him. They had gone into hiding. And, and now they're back. And, and they're boldly claiming that Jesus is alive. Which, by the way, is probably the single biggest reason I believe the New Testament. I mean, the, I have lots of questions, like many of you do, like about science and evolution and why they're suffering in the world and lots of other things. But here's one thing I can't explain any other way. Why these uneducated, untrained, small-town fishermen who were so scared when Jesus got arrested and put to death, why a few weeks later they're boldly risking their lives insisting that Jesus is alive and they're willing to go to the stake for it? And they do. How do you explain that? Well, that's another sermon. (laughs) 
And, and none of that matters back to the religious council here. All that matters to them is status quo, holding on to their power, their status, their privilege. So they call Peter and John back in and they command them not to ever speak or teach in the name of Jesus again. And how do Peter and John reply? Basically with the same response that Socrates had given years earlier at a similar council in Athens when that council commanded him to stop teaching what he was teaching. He said, who should I obey? God or you? I have to obey God. That's how the apostles reply. And, and this attitude, this, this courage has been the seedbed of free speech and free thought ever since. We can't help it, Peter and John continue. We have to speak about what we've seen and heard. It's not private religion. These are public happenings with worldwide implications. And we've witnessed all of it. So we have to tell people what we've seen or heard. People deserve to know. They deserve to know the facts so they can choose for themselves. Well, then, then the council has to let them go. They can't figure out how to punish them because they haven't done anything wrong, though later we'll see that changes. So as we close, let's, let's think about these two sets of leaders, the apostles and the Jerusalem council. A deep rift is opening up between them the question is, which of them are the rightful leaders of God's people? The authentic representatives of God's purposes in the world. Which of them should Jesus or, or God's people follow going forward? Should it be the apostles or should it be the Jerusalem council? And so the question is, which of them should you and I follow? That's the question Luke's putting to us here. You can tell a lot about someone by the heroes they admire and the leaders they respect. So how about you? Will you press into the message and the example of the apostles who have nothing to gain and everything to lose, but are joyously compelled to, to share and live the good news that Jesus Christ is the salvation of the world? How do you follow the apostles' leadership? Well, well, you read and follow the books they left us. The, the New Testament, their teaching, their example, their testimony about Jesus. And like them, you pattern your life after Jesus' life. And Jesus' self-giving love. You live your life in such a way that more of Jesus' way, more of his influence take, takes root in the world. You, you won't find this original version of Jesus, the Apostles' version. You won't find it on Fox News. You won't find it in many churches even these days. You won't find it very often on TV. But it's there in the New Testament, in these books that we have. Or, when you're thinking about leadership, leaders to follow, you could side with the council and say, you know, the most important thing is really to maintain my comfort and my privilege and my feeling safe and secure for me and my family. I'm not going to get too worked up about anything besides that, truth be told. In fact, that's my religion. That's my real religion and my real politics. Whatever helps to maintain my own privilege and comfort. 
And that's a long-established approach to religion, even Christian religion. It goes that route. It's still alive and well today. But it's not actually what Christianity is about. Let's pray. God, thank you for the book of Acts. We, Jesus was amazing when, when we look at him in the four Gospels. But we could kind of write him off and say, well, he was God. We can all take a breath and get back to regular life now. But then we see his followers doing the things he did and being the way he was and saying the things he said. And we are challenged. And so, God, I pray that you would help us individually and as a church to choose what sort of leadership we will follow, who our heroes will be. That you would help us to choose well and to follow you well in the world today. Amen.